Welcome back. This is Keith Parsons with Heavy Wireless. This is a podcast as part of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And in today's episode, we're talking with Mike Wade about drones and how you can use drones in your Wi-Fi business. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Keith. Well, this is kind of a, a, a cool topic. And the reason I, I know it's cool is because we offered it as a, a deep dive at a WLPC in Phoenix and it sold out. Actually, it was the first to sell out. And then we opened it up some more and it sold out some more. So obviously there's a, there's this desire to learn about drones and you're the man. So first of all, tell us uh, how you got into drones. So as a uh, wireless design engineer, uh, a lot of uh, my work, uh, some of my work was out to a point to point links. And I got tired of climbing up on roofs and doing surveys and, and bringing the binoculars and can I get from point A to point B and what is, what's the, how am I going to mount this, uh, this, uh, radio? So went out and got a drone and started, started doing some work with it. Found out in that process that, uh, if you're going to be earning any, any money using a drone, you have to be certified, uh, by the FAA under part 107. So I started through that process, but it was originally not wanting to climb ladders anymore. So you used your drone just as a remote set of eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So much of what you need to do uh, with a point to point link is, is the mounting is the location that you're going to, that you want to use even available. Are there trees in the way? Is there another building in the way? It's difficult to see that from the ground. So you got to go up to the, to the rooftop and, uh, using a drone makes that much, much easier. So no more compass, binoculars, ladders, getting the permission, getting, finding the guy with the keys to get you through the, the ladder on the outside or, you know, you, you know, so the your your initial thing was I need some eyes that let me see places that I don't want to have to climb to. Have you done the same thing indoor, not just outdoor? So yeah, um, not so much carpeted space. That one you can you can see. There's there's not a whole lot you need a drone for. But uh, in a warehouse in particular, checking the installation are the antennas oriented properly. What is the what is the antenna seeing seeing? Don't anthropomorphize. We, we use, use that all the time. It's fine. Yeah. What What does the What does the antenna see as far as its its space? Are, are we looking at do all of the access points? Are they all in the same plane? Are they all seeing each other? You know, clear as day, or is there anything in between? Uh, it It helps so that you're not getting up on a on a man lift uh, looking at every location. Did you take your drone up? near the AP and then kind of see where it's, I mean, put your, put the, the drone in the position of the AP to see where it's looking. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Fly the, fly the drone up to the AP, take a look at the AP, fly around it. Um, I've found access points that are supposed to be warehouse uh, antennas that are supposed to be oriented up and down the row installed across. So the, you can find that out. What, on a you mean installers sure. don't follow your rules? Oh, no, I didn't say well, that. There, there's actually some um, warehouse antennas that need to be perpendicular to where it's going. That's the way they're designed. Mm -hmm. And yet installers just pick it up and hold it and go, oh, it's got to go this way. Long way, long row. Let's long put it row, that Of way. course, yeah. So, well, when you started, I mean, how long ago did this FAA Part 107 become a rule for earning money? Uh, that's a good question and one that I don't know the answer to. Uh, it's been longer than I've been flying a drone. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. And and the earning money part, having I attended your uh, deep dive at WLPC, 
I followed your advice and went and also got part 107 certified, took the exam, whatever. And some of the rules there about, it's not just, did you get cash? Oh yeah. Were you, I mean, you could, one of the rules, well, I think one of the questions I got was your, your son's playing football and you get asked to fly a drone over and he gets his, you know, monthly subscription or whatever his cost for playing football waived. Mm-hmm. You're getting or compensated. Even, even more subtle than that. Uh, the coach of the team knows you're doing this and he's going to make a decision one way or the other, whether or not to play your kid or somebody else. And you've helped out. If that ultimately influences his decision, then you are earning something. You're earning some form of compensation for flying that drone. So how did you go about getting your training and certification so you could legally fly and be compensated? So I decided to use an online training service uh, called Pilot Institute, and they went through the process of teaching you what's required. It's not just a, a brain dump system. It is uh, teaching you all of the, all of the requirements uh, of getting your Part 107. So by the time I took the exam, I was well prepared. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as difficult as I had built it up in my head to be. You had mentioned that when we were in the deep dive together and I went, oh, I've looked at some of those sample questions. I can like brute force this. FCC exams, there is a pool of questions. And if you, it's a huge pool, but mm-hmm. you can, if you want, basically see every question you might get. It just takes a long, long time to go through them. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll just take a shot at a couple and some of the questions I, you know, and I studied for my, my private pilot's exam oh, decades ago and thought I knew what's going on. But there's a lot of very specific rules that have to do with drones and a lot that deal with how do you, how do you read a METAR? Like I, I had, had forgot about that. It's kind of a, a code you have to understand. Mm-hmm. So I followed your advice. I, I did that. And in, in the deep dive, you said about 15 hours. I, I took about 20 because I wanted to make sure I'd, I didn't get embarrassed and, and, and not pass. Uh, and this exam, you have to go to a local testing center, not specifically one that we're used to in our industry that's a Prometric or a whatever they're called now. They, have, they, they keep changing their names. But you're going specifically to an airport, a local airport. So which airport did you go for yours? Um, it was close. I'm in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. I think it was close to the Hayward Airport. Uh, but... Pilots, uh, this is the FAA testing facility. Again, it's a, it's not the FAA, but they are contracted to do testing yeah. for pilots and air and, and the other tests they do are pi- private pilot tests, uh, mm-hmm. instrument rating tests, uh, you know, yeah. ATP tests, those kind of things. Yeah. And, and they're just as stringent as we're used to. You go in and have to turn all your stuff in, sit mm-hmm. down, you know, log in. You don't get to use any of your own stuff. Um, yep. They provide you with a calculator and a grease pencil and uh, I think a magnifying glass and the, the, the sort of a key booklet for the test. So they don't have images on the test. They refer you to, you know, look at page 12 and answer this question. I, I knew that from the study and from practicing with that little booklet. I really, really missed being able to have it on screen and zooming in. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wear bifocals. I'm an old guy. So I took my own magnifying glass just to be sure, yeah. and I was very glad I had it. Yes. Oh, yes. Those those images are very small, and uh, the the questions are require that you see the the detail. The detail. So you you took this class with um, Pilot Institute. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the instructor? Very knowledgeable. 
Uh, the instructor is a, uh, a pilot and a, uh, you know, a flight instructor um, and very, very into drones. So it was, it was probably the best online training course that I've taken. And, you know, as wireless professionals, we, we take a bunch of them. But it was a very good course. I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, so I think uh, if, if you wanted to kind of rush through, you might do it in 10 hours. I actually kind of enjoyed it, so I stretched it out a little longer. They use an app called Teachable, and I had downloaded onto my iPad all the videos. Mm-hmm. And so I could just study while I was flying. Yeah, it made, it, made yeah. it so much nicer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought I had figured out some trick, and then about probably there was like in the very beginning that I skipped over because it was like introduction things. They had a lesson on how to download. <laughs> I, I thought I'd figured out this neat trick. <laughs> so yeah, why why do you think the FAA requires the this level of certification in order to be a drone pilot that can earn money? Well, you you've got to first of all safety. You've got to you've got to fly safe. You've got to um, not interfere with the rest of what's in the airspace. You got helicopters. You got aircraft. Um, you have to know where and when you can fly uh, near near controlled airspace near airports. Um, you you learn that uh, aircraft generally can't flow below below 500 feet, and we're not allowed to fly above 400 feet. So there's a, a cushion in between us and them. Uh, except for helicopters, they can do whatever they want, uh, but they're very noisy, and you can see them coming. You can get out of the way, but it's it's primarily for primarily for safety. And uh, there's there's two levels of certification. So basically, if you want to fly a drone, you have to be certified. If you own a toy, if you are going to put some machine in the air, you have to be certified. And the and, FAA, but that's fairly new. I got a drone years ago, and there, that wasn't yeah. part of the deal. And I broke tons of rules. I did. I thought you could fly it because some people on YouTube do. They, they try to see yeah. how far away. I I could not see it. At, yeah. like, like it was it was it miles away. Yeah. And I thought I was being cool because I could fly it that far. Uh-huh. I then go, and I think that's one of the reasons why you have to be certified. To they're like, you got, you need to know the rules, and I was breaking most of them. It's you. It's still fun to fly within the rules, right? People, yeah. You know, I don't want to. Government's not going to tell me what to do, but uh, honestly, what what can you do? Well, I'm not going to go there. You can do plenty of things. Anyways, let's get back to the requirements. So, so what's so the, the so the first certification in the deep dive that you did at WPC? You held the first day you had some content and then they took that certification exam right there in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And what did that entail? So the um, recreational, all flight is, all drone flight is controlled by the part 107. But Congress said, you know what? We're not going to get kids to take this exam. This is kind of ridiculous. So they did a carve out. They said, if we want people to just fly for fun, here are the eight things that we need them to do, eight or nine, depending on what list you look at. But here are the things that we need everyone to do. And we'll make the test free. We'll make it online. And you're pretty much guaranteed to pass it after you learn the requirements, right? It's, it's, it's not a very difficult exam. I was amazed. It was one of those exams like sometime you take when HR makes you take a, a class. Should you slap your coworker? Yes or no? And if you say yes, it says, I'm sorry, you got it wrong. Try again. Exactly. Yeah. Are you sure about that? Let's try that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, 
designed to inform you of what the rules are. And then you get a, uh, you get an actual certificate and you carry that with you, keep that in your, your flight bag and um, it teaches you what you need to do as far as registering the, the drone, whether or not you need to, uh, when it's required. Um, and that's a, a, you know, $5 to register a drone. It's not, it's not that much. And for recreational, you're, you are the registrant, not the drone. Correct. Yes, yeah. you can you can register once for a hundred drones if you want. Once you go part one hundred seven, and you're flying uh, under that certificate, you need to register every drone. So some 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 key differences there, but it's pretty small. If you just want to get involved, start playing with it. You can get in with just that simple exam. Uh, if you had to coalesce it down, how long would it take to cover all the points that are on that first exam? 20 minutes, 25 minutes, if you're coming at it from zero knowledge. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's safe to say, just do it. Absolutely. And yeah. you need that with, with any drone itself. Mm -hmm. uh, drones have become complex. They do, There's a lot of drones that do a lot of things. But one category that they kind of, like you said, carve out, they carved out for really lightweight drones. And so what's the requirement there? So any drone under 250 grams, you don't need to uh, register. That's a pretty lightweight drone. The one that we, we provided in the deep dive was 249 grams without putting a sticker or anything on it. it, it and, is, and, with, and with the limited battery. Limited battery, yes. Yeah. Well, about if, if, you swap, if you swap it out to the, to the regular battery that comes that you can buy for that, it mm -hmm. takes you over the 249. It does. Yep. Yep. And all that means is you've got to register it. So again, $5, put a sticker on it and uh, off you go. If someone wanted to get started in drones, is there a drone you'd recommend they start with? I'm a big fan of the DJI drones. They're they're very easy to fly. Um, when I first started flying drones, uh, there wasn't a lot of computer control, right? So there were four motors and a controller. And whatever input you put into the controller, that drone was going to do. And apparently, the input that I was putting into the controller was crash this drone. Every single time I took off, it was difficult to take off. Uh, ground effect would really mess with the drone. Um, yeah, uh, that didn't last very long. That drone didn't last very long. Um, but now they're computer controlled. You push a button, they take off. They stay, they hover in place. You don't even have to hold the controls. You can fly it around to your heart's content. And uh, if you get in trouble, you just let go of the, of the, of the controls and it'll, it'll, depending on how fast you're going, it'll stop and hover. They're very stable. They're very easy to fly. Uh, additionally, TGI has, has worked to not let you fly in bad places. Not bad places, places you shouldn't be flying. Mm -hmm. The software has GPS built in and it comes up and says, oh, you're here. I, you, you can't fly that here because I looked up in a database and where you are is in a restricted zone, so I'm not going to let you fly. Yes, it does that. It doesn't do that in all the restricted areas. So you can't rely on that. You kind of need to do your own research, figure out where it's, where it's, where you're able to fly, how high you can fly, uh, use a, an, a Lance approved app on your phone. You can find out, you know, exactly what the requirements are. You can and apply. And you want to define the term Lance. Lance. Yeah, it doesn't matter what the acronym means, but what is LANS? It is a database of all of the controlled airspace in the U.S. This is a this is a FAA requirements and FAA certification, so it's only going to give you the information in the U.S. 
Uh, but what it does is it tells you, it, it looks at the, the flight ceilings uh, for drone operators. And if you'd imagine an airport, you could, you could guess you're, you're not allowed to fly at an airport. You're not allowed to fly a drone at an airport. So there you can have zero foot clearance near the airport. And as you get further and further away, you might get 50, 100, 150, 200. You'll be able to fly at these altitudes because the airplanes aren't going to be there. So this application is going to uh, allow you to apply for uh, the ability to fly in these zones. Limited by the the height, you're not going to be able to go above that. There are waivers if you if you're being hired by the airport to uh, survey. Uh, there are ways. I'm not going to say around it. There are ways that you can fly in these zones, uh, but just for your you know day to day, I want to go out and fly today. You're going to look at this app. You're gonna you're gonna say, oh, I'm free to fly. I, I don't have to ask for any kind of permission, or oh, I am in an area that requires. I can only go up to 150 feet, and I need to. Uh, request to fly here. Use the app. Takes you seconds to to apply, and you're you, you're immediately granted access. If, yeah. if you're granted access, and you're you're brought you you know you're going to be granted as part of the process of requesting. I, I was at my son's house down in Bullhead City, Arizona. Like in there, like it's desert everywhere, and I just stopped because checklist said check Lance. I checked Lance and they're like, no, you can't. And there was this airport that I had no idea. And yeah. and it stopped me from in that. I could still go up to 200 feet. And, and mm-hmm. if I wanted to, I could have applied because it's very rarely used. But it was nice that it uh, kind of stopped me. And the DGI app said, oh, you need to, you need to, to think about this. So, mm-hmm. and I, I do like what you'd mentioned. They're so much simpler to fly nowadays. Oh, yeah. That you don't have to be that skilled, mm-hmm. which brings me to um, modes, flight flight modes that you have in your controller. Yep. And one thing we discussed before we started this podcast, and we actually discussed at WPC before, is um, one of the modes is called sport mode. And so I'll let you define what the modes are and why sport mode is a little dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, sport mode for I'm getting a lot of uh, feedback from the the attendees of the of the course, and a lot of that is uh, pictures of um, the results of using sport mode. It's it's fun, but it's also uh, we call it crash mode. So the three modes, you know, in a, a lot of the manufacturers, but specifically for DJI, you've got uh, the the normal mode, which is all of these modes change the the flight characteristics, right? So there's a cinema mode, there's a normal mode, and there's a, a crash mode. There's <laughs> normal mode. You fly in normal mode. You get the feel for how the controls respond for that. Cinema mode calms things down. Uh, the idea is that you're going to have a much uh, more stable platform to do your your video. Um, you're going to get the the camera is on a gimbal. The camera is uh, going to offer its own stabilization, but when the drone isn't zipping around and, you know, flying erratically, you're going to get a much better video image. It's, it's pretty impressive. You get the, a, a cinematic image. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, is where the cine mode comes from. Exactly. They're up to, you know, 4k and plus, I mean, 4k is, is an affordable drone. You, know, you can go much, much, much higher. And uh, you know, we're talking Hollywood. The, the cameras are amazing. But you can get one relatively inexpensive to do your survey work, to do your point-to-points, uh, and uh, 
the video is, is pretty amazing. So you use cinema mode, nice and calm, easy to fly. Uh, reaction time is, is good. Uh, but sport mode. Wow. We all have experiences of sport mode. You get that thing going. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's real zippy, real responsive, but uh, stopping without, you know, using a tree or a building or a bush is uh, <laughs> you need, you need a big open space. Well, since it's an audio podcast, I'll try to give a, a visual view of what's going on. So in, in sport mode, you've got your four propellers. And if you want to go straight up, it's kind of level with the ground and the propellers are pushing straight down. When you want to go a direction, it kind of tilts the device in the direction you want to travel. And in sport mode, it tilts quite a bit. Like almost yes. the, the blades are almost perpendicular to the ground. And so when you have it going really fast that way, it's just cutting right through the air. And mm -hmm. when you want to stop, it has to rotate from the propellers facing backwards to the propellers facing forwards. And the drone has inertia, and it just keeps going, even though the blades are now pushing against the direction it wants to go. It keeps going. And Take it does stop. Time. It just takes a while. Yeah. We're all familiar with uh, the laws of physics and in, in Wi-Fi, and this is just another application of that. Yeah, and it's it could be dangerous too because if if people are watching around, you th when you're in cinema mode, you feel in control. In normal mode, it's not too bad, but in sport mode, it's fun. But you can get way too close to people and mm, quickly potentially yeah. cause harm. Yeah, talking about people. There's two things I want to discuss about people. One is one of the rules has to do with you need to be within visual line of sight. I mean, you can't use binoculars. And if you're looking down at your screen, you might need a visual observer to help you. So that's a person who's with you. That person is watching the drone and you're flying. What are the rules about other people? And drones. I mean, this, there's a big chunk of this, both in the initial little baby test, but also in the FAA Part 107, there's a lot more about that. So can you just give us kind of a recap of what you can and can't do around people? Yes. So the, the quick, and, quick and easy is don't fly over people. There are minor exceptions to that, but very minor. Actually, I'm... Uh, becoming certified in the EU in preparation for uh, upcoming uh, WLPC. Work, work. Yes. Hopefully we'll yeah. see. Uh, but there, there's a lot more differentiation of flying over and near people in their certification. But basically you don't fly over people unless they are part of the uh, part of the event. So if you have, um, if you have a crowd of people at a concert, you're not allowed to fly over them. If you have a few people in a park that you are flying to film those those people, you can fly over them. They're in, involved in the uh, the process of flying the drone. They're, they're not flying the drone, but... But they, you couldn't fly a drone over strangers in the park. You could not fly a drone over strangers in the park, yeah. So if you've got a group of people that you're filming, you can fly over them. But the people that are watching you film, you can't fly over them. So your your visual observer is going to help you... Uh, navigate that. They're also, they're not they're just there for the flight of the drone. They're there for crowd control. They're there for safety. Um, so you're, you both, the pilot and the visual observer have to maintain visual line of sight with the drone at all times. Um, but you don't both have to be constantly looking at the drone. 
the pilot can be looking down at their screen. They can be looking around for power lines, for trees, for safety, and so can the uh, visual observer. But the requirements for the visual observer is you can't use binoculars. You can only do it with unaided visual. You know, you can use glasses, but that's it. And you can't use any sort of uh, enhanced communication. You can't have the visual observer up on a hill using a walkie-talkie and telling you, hey, you're, you're fine. They, you have to be uh, within vocal earshot. You have to be in the same space. Close enough. Yep. Um, so when I first got my first drone oh, many years ago, I thought, you know, filming kids' soccer games was great because then they could, you know, teach the kids the top mm -hmm. view down. They could see where they were. They all clumped together. You know, when little kids play, they start playing magnet ball, wherever the ball is, the whole team goes, yeah. and trying to get them to not act that way and stay in positions. That's not an approved thing to do with a drone. Yeah, that, uh, that's dicey because you could say that, that they've all been informed. They're all within an, a, a controlled area. You've sealed off the field so that no one other than people that are involved in the event are there. Um, so I, I don't know that that's not... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other parents around. And, and legally, you'd have to talk to each of the parents and all of their kids are sitting in the sidelines. And, and honestly, sign a release, you know. Yeah. So legal, if you did the work, probably you could make it, make it legal. But uh, for a, a kid's soccer game, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get back to the, the kind of the reason for this whole podcast. How do you use drones to enhance what you're doing in Wi-Fi? Not just today, but what do you what do you think we can be doing in the future? So we've already mentioned point-to-point uh, -point links outdoors, uh, doing some survey, visual survey work uh, in, in warehouse scenarios. Uh, the next, the next step, I mean, they're doing amazing things with the, the payload for drones, right? The, the reason for using a drone, it's a camera or a sensor, or, I mean, drones can do anything from, uh, starting fires, you know, back for it, not, not crashing and starting a fire. They can do that, but on purpose, fire departments will use them to start a, a, a backfire or whatever they call it. Or, or agricultural, they go and actually put seeds or pesticides down or like or, per plant. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's just amazing things that payloads can do. We're just barely starting to, there's a, there's a company in uh, Australia that's doing, doing some Wi-Fi wireless, let's not say Wi-Fi. Uh, the company's called Six Arms and uh, sort of refers to this, you know, six arms with the blades on a, on a drone. But they'll go up to a cellular, cellular tower or a, you know, a, a long haul point to point installation and they'll survey the RF coming off of that tower and, and build antenna plots and, and show that the installation was done properly. So there's some RF aspect to doing survey work. You and I were talking about this just before we started the podcast. It, it's it's going to be difficult to implement this kind of in the real world, where we do our kind of survey work, carpeted space in in uh, warehouses, manufacturing facilities, things like that. Basically, you've got to see the drone. You've got to operate the survey software. You're going to need a few people to do it. Um, is it going to be more efficient than walking the space. At some point when automation comes in and you're able to uh, bring a drone to a, a brand new facility that you haven't mapped out specifically for this drone and, and allow it to fly and create a pattern that will cover the entire space and accurately represent its location in interior, uh, GPS doesn't work. So 
LIDAR or something like that. You're going to, one day, one day it'll happen and, and maybe it will be uh, more efficient to, to do surveys that way. Right now, probably not there yet. Well, same as the, I, I think any of us who have walked for miles and miles doing surveys think along the way, well, could I be in a golf cart? Could mm-hmm. I be like, I, I've done, oh, I don't know, probably 10K worth of uh, space on my Segway doing surveys just to speed that up. But it, yeah. I still had to be physically there doing it. And you dream of things like, oh, should we put it on a Roomba or a little robot or anything? And all of those require a operator. Mm-hmm. And so even if you could mount it and have it at the right height, collecting the right data, mm-hmm. there still needs to be an operator involved. And if you're the operator, you, you know, so, so you, you still have to go down every aisle with the robot. Yeah, exactly. You're following the robot, putting in the same number of steps as you normally would. So I guess that's the interim step. You know, we do that until the automation works and, and, you know, we'll see. And part of that I think is also tied to the FAA rules right now. A lot of the rules keep us from, I mean, if, if you want to be legal and I'm totally suggesting be legal, do all the steps you need to follow the rules. The rules are also not there to let you do crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You still have to have that full line of sight the entire time. Exactly. Meaning you would have to walk nearly as far inside. I mean, you have to walk to every aisle in the warehouse, even if you could. And then how did you get permission from all of the forklift operators that they can do it? I think the one of you talked about just going in a warehouse, let's go up and look at an AP and its orientation. You can do that alone. But some of the more RF survey work takes a little more effort. Mm -hmm. Though it is possible. The uh, Hamana, Ekahau, Others can take data sets that just have the X, Y, well, X, Y, and Z coordinates plus the data they collected from a radio and in a data file could be turned around and turned into a heat map. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're getting close that we can do that. The question is, is it more efficient than doing it the, the old-fashioned way? Exactly, yeah. Yep. Hey, you know, we didn't, we didn't have that software to begin with, the, the survey software, Ekahau, Hamana. And we did surveys a, a different way years ago, right? Now it, it's 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 getting it's getting much easier, and drones are doing a lot of things for us these days. One of these days, it'll come together. Mike, what would you recommend someone do if they want to get started in drones? I would uh, very much recommend taking the trust exam. That is uh, the recreational exam for for drone pilots. That's free. Don't don't pay for it. Go to the FAA website faa.gov, you'll find uh, different locations to take the test online. Take that exam. You will learn the basics of what you need to do to start having fun with your drone. And as you progress and you want to start doing more things, you'll find out the point at which you want to start pursuing the Part 107. If you're not going to be doing any kind of commercial work, you you may never need it. Uh, I wouldn't even be concerned about it, but you'll know the you'll know the limits as soon as you take the uh, the trust exam. And again, free, not a very difficult test. You'll learn you'll learn what you need to know. Well, we'll, we'll add all of the links that you discussed. And how would someone find you if they wanted to ask you more questions? I'm on Twitter at wirelesskahuna.com, and uh, you can you can reach reach out to me there. I'm also I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me, uh, Mike Wade. And we will, we will leave those links in the show notes. 
You've been listening to another episode of Heavy Wireless, part of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, and we look forward to meeting with you again on the next episode. Thank you.